Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. We are back with a new season of Club Book, and we'll be hosting 10 exciting events from February to May 2017, all around the Twin Cities Metro, and we look forward to having you join us. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We would like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features Nettie Akorafor at Ramsey County Library, Roseville. Internationally best-selling science fiction and fantasy author Nettie Akorafor is one of the genre's most unique contemporary voices. Her spellbinding work is inspired by her rich West African heritage. Titles of particular note include the post-apocalyptic Who Fears Death, written in 2010, winner of the prestigious World Fantasy Award for Best Novel, and its 2016 prequel, The Book of Phoenix, which was shortlisted for the Arthur C. Clarke Award. Akorafor's equally popular young adult books include Akata Witch, written in 2011, affectionately dubbed the Nigerian Harry Potter by fans, and Zara the Windseeker in 2005, winner of multiple prizes for Pan-African literature. A screenplay for Zara the Windseeker is currently in the works, and both Who Fears Death and Akata Witch have also been optioned for films. In addition to her novel-length work, Akorafor also pens short fiction, including the recent Hugo and Nobella award-winning science fiction novella, Benti, in 2015. Akorafor makes use of slides in this discussion. If you're interested, you can find these online at clubbook.org slash podcasts. And now, Nettie Akorafor. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. I was born in Cincinnati, Ohio. At Christ Hospital, my mom told me. The same hospital at which my older sisters were born. The same hospital at which my father was doing his residency in general surgery. My mother earned her bachelor's at the University of Cincinnati and then her master's in hospital and health administration at Xavier University. She started, her ma she, she started that master's degree four months after I was born. However, I never knew this city of my birth because we moved a year after I was born. When someone mentions Cincinnati, I don't think home. In a lot of ways, the disconnection from my place of birth goes right along with the narrative of who I am. I'm the child of Nigerian immigrants. My parents came to the United States in 1969 to attend school. They planned to return to Nigeria to their home and family with the degrees and knowledge they earned. 
However, the Biafran Civil War broke out, and they weren't able to immediately go back. And so they stayed here in the, Ameri in the, in the United States. When the war was over, they reconnected with family and started taking my siblings and me to Nigeria to get to know our heritage and our relatives. At the same time, here in the United States, after leaving Cincinnati, Ohio, staying a few years in Indianapolis, Indiana, we settled in South Holland, Illinois, a growing town in the southern suburbs of Chicago, where my father began his career as a cardiovascular surgeon. This would be a town I'd identify as one of my homes because we lived here until I was about 12 years old. We were one of the first black families to move here. Not only was this neighborhood not used to diversity, it was hostile towards it. My parents were immigrants, knowledgeable about racing in the United States, but not that knowledgeable. Where they saw a nice, quaint, family-friendly neighborhood, African-Americans would have seen the red flags. To make a long story short, being a, little girl, being a little black girl in South Holland, Illinois in the 80s was to live through the aftershocks of the 60s. In our neighborhood, our home, my sisters and I were lucky we could run really fast. So having the black American experience of South Holland coupled with brief yet frequent trips to Nigeria had a profound effect on my siblings and me. My worldview was broad I questioned, I noticed. I knew that other places existed outside of the racist south suburbs of Chicago. Very early in life, I understood what diversity was and why it was important. I saw firsthand what could happen when a place lacked it. I call myself Niger-American. Niger is Nigerian slang for Nigerian, or Nigeria, implying a familiarity and a closeness with the country. Niger-American is one word implying that, that, that to be Nigerian and American cannot be separated from one another. And the word itself is completely different from American and Nigerian. It's something new. In many ways, I believe that this is why I found, this is why I wound up writing science fiction. It's a genre of invention, of speculation, the what if and it's obsessed with travel, space travel, aliens, adapting, colonizing, interacting, reacting to other planets and people, exploration, the future. However, when it comes to Western-rooted science fiction, what most would consider classic science fiction, xenophobia, the fear of the other, the alien, the, coveted, the coveting of home and the need to protect it, keep it pure, is reflective of real-world beliefs. This isn't the case, this isn't the case for science, the science fiction that I write, and there's a reason for that, which I will get to. I travel a lot. No one ever told me this, but despite the fact that writing is such a solitary practice, getting published can take you all over the world. And that's been the case for me. So about three years ago, I got really sick and tired of TSA. <laughs> it was the hair. Every time I traveled, 
It earned me a full pat down, especially of my hair. I kid you not. <laughs> I tried going through security with it up. I tried having it in a thick braid on the side. I tried, with it, I tried having it in a bun. It was always the same treatment every time. Would you like a private room? <laughs> so they could squeeze, fumble with, and inspect my thick hair. They would, take down my, they would have me take down my bun and squeeze, and my hair is close to my, actually it's past my knees now. And so they would squeeze from the tip all the way to the root, each of my locks. That's why they asked about the private room, because, you know, it's kind of embarrassing. So eventually, and eventually I applied for a, for a TSA pre-check <laughs> to put an end to all of this. The application process requires an intense background check. So the exchange was a lot of privacy. Also, while in a rather rebellious, cheeky mood, I wrote this mini comic called LaGuardia. <laughs> based, <laughs> based on New York's LaGuardia International Airport, it was set at, it was set at the LaGuardia Airport of the future. This I, when I think back, this was the, one of the beginnings, one of the many beginnings of my Binti novella series. But I didn't know back then. So at this LaGuardia airport of the future, there were all kinds of people traveling. In this airport of the future, citizens of the world and visitors from all over the galaxy are welcome. Hint, hint. So a woman is pregnant and she happens to be Egyptian-American, and she's coming from Nigeria. Oh, what a coincidence. What a great, <laughs> great combination. She's taken aside, and her hair is patted down. Then she's interrogated, and eventually she's asked if she's, she's, asked if she's, she's uh, interacted with any aliens while in Nigeria. <laughs> then, in the end, she's asked who the father of her child is and if her child is human. So eventually they have to let her go and she clearly looks pissed. It's a nice day outside when she steps out and goes to her car and <laughs> she reaches into her purse and, and she brings something out and she puts it on the dashboard and it starts doing things. So <laughs> like I said, I was in a rebellious mood when I wrote this. <laughs> So basically, she was smuggling in an alien refugee, and, <laughs> and she tells it, welcome to America. <laughs> the TSA was so concerned with her hair, her ethnic background, where she'd been, that they missed the fact that the plant she was carrying was not a plant. So this was, this was the beginning, especially the, especially the airport was the beginning of, um, one of my, of, of my, some of my visions for Binti. Uh, oh, and mind you, this, this um, mini comic, and that wasn't the whole thing, that was just like, uh, it's pretty short, but there were a few panels that I took out just for the sake of, of speed. But um, this was illustrated by Sophie Campbell, um, a transgender illustrator, who's also the author of Shadow Eye, the Shadow Eyes series, uh, Wet Moon, 
Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Gem, and many other super amazing works. I love her everything. She's awesome. And um, the colored parts, and we're going to color the whole thing, and eventually I'm going to post this. But the, the colored parts were done by um, John Jennings, who's an African-American illustrator, whose most recent work was the graphic novelization of Octavia Butler's Kindred, which recently hit the New York Times bestseller list, because it's awesome. So if you, haven't, if you haven't read Kindred, the graphic novel, read it. It's just, it's amazing. It's, it's, it adds more to the narrative of um, an already awesome novel. So aside from the issues of immigration and American-flavored xenophobia, one of the other themes I was thinking about was, that, or was what we allow and give up in order to travel, to move around, to leave home and return and how this often depends on who you are. I think today these issues are more timely than ever. So flash forward, in 2015, I wrote my first narrative that took place in space, a novella, a little novella called Binti. I finally had left Earth. <laughs> I wrote it as a novella because I feel, well, there are several reasons it just kind of came like that, but also I feel that it's best to take baby steps with things. I've always been afraid of outer space, absolutely terrified of it, to say the least. It's dark, it's cold, and basically all you're supposed to do as a creature from the Earth is die out there. <laughs> so the thought of writing some, anything set in space just made me ill. Um, watching, thing, watching films set in space made me ill. Um, <laughs> I'm an earthling through and through. This is my home, this earth. <laughs> so um, yeah, it, it was one of the, one of the things when I'm, when I'm writing, if I'm afraid of something, if I'm, if I'm afraid to um, write about something, I know that I should write it. That's always been something I've gone by and it has worked for me and, and forced me to produce some of, some of my best works. Classic themes in narratives of space travel include exploration, colonization, and adventure. However, when I, wrote, when I sat down and wrote Binti, something else happened. I found myself focusing more on culture, identity, travel, and oddly enough, the theme of home. I think this has a lot to do with how I came to write science fiction. My path to it was not the usual one. I didn't grow up reading science fiction, and I think this needs to be highlighted. Too often it's assumed that science fiction narratives come from the same ancestral line, reading Verne's, Shelley, Asimov, Heinlein, etc. This was not the case for me at all. I didn't grow up reading science fiction, despite the fact that I read a lot. If the story was good, it usually didn't matter the genre or the category. I was open to it. However, when I picked up science fiction novels, I'd try to read them, but then, but the worlds that they rendered, they were like, they were like being thrust into space with no suit. <laughs> I didn't live in these books. I couldn't exist in these books. There were no reflections of anyone like myself. I'd identify with the aliens, but the aliens were usually bad. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I wasn't, I wasn't even introduced to Isaac Asimov through his science fiction. I was reading his science books. That was how I knew him. Science fiction was inaccessible to me. I started writing science fiction because of my trips to Nigeria. Whenever we would go, we'd spend half of the time in the city of Lagos, which is a modern, fast-paced um, place. <laughs> Oh, Lagos. I could go on and on about that. That's why I have a novel about it with aliens invading it. <laughs> There's a reason why I said it there. There is a strong reason. Lovely, lovely place, but very, it's just a lot of energy there. A lot of different kinds of energy. Um, in Lagos, people dressed in both traditional and Western clothes. Uh, there were new ideas and there were old ideas, combating, blending, all kinds of things like that. Um, there was electricity. Sometimes. <laughs> then for the second half of our trips there, we'd spend, we'd spend at my parents' ancestral homes, or ancestral villages. In those villages we had, especially in my father's village, we have two houses that are really big and they're like huge mansions in the middle of jungle. Um, that's a whole other story. But this, is, this was in, the, in southeastern Nigeria. With, but despite the fact that these, these beautiful mansions are there, and, and mind you, um, you would go to these, these parts, they always call it the village, the village, um, because it's very rural. You would go to the, this, these parts, um, these parts, these rural parts of Nigeria, and you would see all of these really beautiful elaborate houses, but they wouldn't have any running water or electricity in them. And so these houses would be built by the usually by the children of um, people from there. You know, it was, it was a in a lot of ways, it's a status symbol, especially the ones who have gone abroad. So um, for electricity, when you're there, people would normally use a generator. I remember people who lived here could only get two channels, BET and MTV. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was a spark of many, many conversations with people there, telling people, oh, I remember one, oh God, I can't believe I'm gonna say this, but there was one, um, one man who loved BET, just loved it. And he came up to me one day and he said, so in, in America, do people, do the women really run around in their panties all the time? This is what he thought. <laughs> this is what he thought, and I was, oh sat him down and told him, told him as much as I could. But um, yeah, so yeah, you can imagine their view of Americans because of this very limited exposure to international entertainment. Um, yeah, and images, distorted images. So uh, just going from modern to rural like this had my wheels turning already. You know, I, I, it wasn't that I was sitting there, um, whenever I would visit, whenever we would visit as a family, it wasn't like I was going to research. I was not, I was going to visit family. So it was, it was never where I was looking around thinking, oh, I'm gonna write about this. It's more like I was just going along with the family and collecting. But it was only later on that I realized that I naturally just collect information. And when I sat down to write, these stories would come forth. But it was seeing the way that technology existed and was used in Lagos and in, the, in southeast, the southeastern villages that made me start really thinking about writing science fiction. 
Uh, the example, there's one example I always give. I've given it a thousand times. Some of you probably have heard me say this, but I'm going to say it again. Um, is in the villages where you have no running water, the way that you would take, you would take a bath, you'd be in the bath and you know, you have like a cup, you have a bucket of water and a cup and it's freezing, but it's hot, so it doesn't matter. <sighs> it's a great way to bathe, I'm sorry, it's very nice in the heat. But the way you would get, you would get the water from the bucket was that these, um, especially girls, would go to the stream, the stream every morning and collect water in these huge containers on their heads. And um, when they, they, then they would bring it back and pour it into like a bucket about this high. And so when, they be, when they'd come back with this big bucket of water sloshing on, on their head, they would hold out their cell phones to not get it wet. So you have like this, this combination of technology and a very traditional image. So, you know, that's one thing that I, that I noticed. I noticed that I'm like, oh, this is, this is interesting. And then I'd notice like at the open air markets, the market women would set up appointments with people through their cell phones to come and buy things. So I was just seeing technology infiltrating these, you know, um, really old, just tried and true ways of doing things. And, um, and then, and then in just in general, uh, portable tech, the way that porta portable tech was used a lot in Nigeria before it was used a lot here. For example, laptops were big there um, before, while desktops were big here. And that has to do with infrastructure. A laptop can be charged and doesn't require, um, if the lights go out, it's not gonna have problems. So having a, having a desktop computer in, especially in certain parts of Nigeria where the, the lights go on and off, on and off, um, is not a good idea. It just, it's just very, uh, it eventually destroys a computer. So laptops were big there. And cell phones took off as well, and, and in very unique ways. So whenever I would go, I would see this. And, um, and I would think about this. And then I would think about the fact that I wasn't seeing this written about. So um, too many times Africa as, as a whole in a lot of the science fiction that I was seeing is, is portrayed as a place of the past. Um, it's portrayed as a place that the main character or the main characters go and visit or um, interact with. From, is, the, the point of view is always from the outside. And, um, and if, it, if it is mentioned, if it's even mentioned at all. Um, also, in, in one of the, one of the th examples that I always saw was in post-apocalyptic or uh, apocalyptic fiction, um, especially end of the world fiction. I started watching, there's always this moment where there's a, a kind of a pan shot around the world and you get to see everyone's reaction, everyone freaking out like, oh, we're gonna die, you know? And every time those, ha I, wait, I wait for those, I wait for those moments because I'm like, okay, let's see. Let's see, are they gonna show Africa? Are they gonna show Africa? And nine times out of 10, they don't. Um, it's just like missing. <laughs> it's just like the dark continent, re literally. And that would infuriate the heck out of me. Um, I think it was either in the movie, was it 2012 or the day after tomorrow? One of those where everything broke down and then at the very end, they're on like this big arc. The survivors from around the world are on this big arc and they're going towards Africa. I was like, oh, no, no, no. No, you didn't just do that. So 
You know, like things like that um, made me start thinking about writing science fiction. I don't even know if they were aware of what that, okay, I'm not gonna, <sighs> okay. So um, yeah, I wanted to see Africa, that, the Africa that I was familiar with, which was innovative, not a place of the past, but very much in the present and looking to the future in its own way. And it was, and in the future, I wanted to see, I wanted to see in Africa in the future. Of course, I'm speaking of Africa. It is a continent. It is not a country. It is not homogenous. There are many, there's a lot of diversity in it. You can, you can literally go down the street, like in Nigeria, you could just go a few miles and they're speaking a different dialect, which sounds like a different language. <laughs> So like Nigeria has, I think it's that has the most, um, the biggest variety of languages in the world, I think. Uh, yeah, so that's Africa as a whole. It's like lots of things going on over there. So yeah, so when I say Africa, just know that that's the point of view that I'm coming from. Um, so, and as my mother always says, the best way to get something done is to do it yourself. So I started writing. So back to the idea of home and identity. In the Binti series, I was concerned with, quest with the question, can you ever go home once you leave it? I was looking at culture in the future. I'm gonna read a little bit. So this, this was the beginning of Binti. Might as well put the picture up there. Yeah, imagine that as I'm reading. I powered up the transporter and said a silent prayer. I had no idea what I was going to do if it didn't work. My transporter was cheap, so even a droplet of moisture, or more likely a grain of sand, would cause it to short. It was faulty, and most of the time I had to restart it over and over before it worked. Please not now, please not now, I thought. The transporter shivered in the sand, and I held my breath. Tiny, flat, and black as a prayer stone, it buzzed softly, then slowly rose from the sand. Finally, it produced the baggage lifting force. I grinned. Now I could make it to the shuttle. I swiped Ojitsu from my forehead with my index finger and knelt down. Then I touched the finger to the sand, grounding the, sweat, grounding the sweet smelling red clay into it. Thank you, I whispered. It was a half mile walk along the dark desert road. With the transporter working, I would make it on time. Straightening up, I paused and shut my eyes. Now the weight of my entire life was pressing on my shoulders. I was defying the most traditional part of myself for the first time in my entire life. I was leaving in the dead of night and they had no clue. My nine siblings, all older than me except for my younger sister and brother, would never see this coming. My parents would never imagine I'd do, some, do such a thing in a million years. By the time they all realized what I had done, where I was going, I'd have left the planet. In my absence, my parents would growl to each other that I was to never set foot in their home again. My four aunties and two uncles who lived down the road would shout and gossip amongst themselves about how I'd scandalized our entire bloodline. I was going to be a pariah. Go, I softly whispered to the transporter stamping my foot. The thin metal rings I wore around each ankle jingled noisily, but I stamped my foot again. 
Once on, the transporter worked best when I didn't touch it. Go, I said again, sweat forming on my brow. When nothing moved, I chanced giving the two large suitcases sitting atop the force field a shove. They moved smoothly, and I breathed another sigh of relief. At least some luck was on my side. So that's the beginning of Binti. Binti is a mathematical genius. She's been accepted into the finest university in the galaxy, and she's decided to go. Her people are the, ma the makers of the astrolabe. This is the, original, this is the original version of the astrolabe, and it was perfected by, and I always mutilate this name, it was perfected by Miriam Al Astrolabia Ejlia. This is a picture of my daughter with a woman dressed as Miriam. <laughs> she has to be included in all my speeches. Holding an astrolabe. This was in the United Arab Emirates. In, in Binti, astrolabes have evolved into extremely sophisticated devices that do more than our smartphones. And Binti's insular but brilliant specialized and Binti's insular but br brilliant people specialize in making these. When Binti travels, there's a moment where she gives up her astrolabe and has to have it scanned. I'm going to read this little bit. The travel security officer scanned my astrolabe, a full, deep scan. Dizzy with shock, I shut my eyes and breathed through my mouth to steady myself. Just to leave the planet, I had to give them access to my entire life, me, my family, and all forecasts of my future. I stood there frozen, hearing my mother's voice in my head. There is a reason why our people do not go to that, go to that university. Umzayuni wants you for its own gain, Binti. You go to that school and you become its slave. I couldn't help but contemplate the possible truth of my mother's words. I hadn't, even get, I hadn't even gotten there yet, and already I'd given them my life. I wanted to ask the officer if he did this t for everyone, but I was afraid now that he'd done it. They could do anything to me at this point. Best not to make trouble. So Binti must give something up, her information, in order to travel. Similar to how I had to give up my information to obtain my TSA pre-check status. <laughs> In part two, Binti comes home and must deal with the fact that home may be home, but she's no longer so at home, at home. <laughs> That's a really hard sentence to read. <laughs> the, story behind, the story behind me writing Binti is very personal. It's, it's science fiction, it's set in space, but the, it, it started in many different parts. It started in many different places. The first was with the LaGuardia comic, which, where I was dealing with um, looking at issues of identity and looking at issues of travel and what it means to travel and what you give up. The second was um, the, that trip to the United Arab Emirates where when I was in, they had like a, it was for a children's festival and they had, um, you know, they had various people, 
they had, they, had, they had a section where they were talking about great Arab inventors, and they had various people dressed up as different inventors. And there were several, and there was only one woman, and it was, it was Miriam. And I saw that she had invented the, the or perfected the astrolabe, which basically is an ancient version of a GPS because it shows you where you are. And I was, my mind was blown by that. It was blown by the fact that, okay, there was a female Arab scientist, and I'm thinking of all the stereotypes about Arab women, so there's that. And then this idea of a woman inventing or perfecting this device that tells you where you are. That, that struck me um, very deeply and, 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 and links back to my thoughts and um, contemplations about travel. The fourth influence was when, um, on that same trip, we were at the, I was in Sharjah, and there's a lagoon, the Khalid Lagoon there, and it was really hot one day, and I was out there with my daughter, and um, we didn't realize why everyone around us had disappeared. There was suddenly no one outside. It was because it was the middle of the day, and it was like over 100 degrees. <laughs> and people were like, okay, whenever it gets to that point, people just go, they just disappear. You know, they go inside, they lie down. I saw some people lying down. <laughs> um, but we were just out there, and so we were looking, and I remember as I was looking around, like, where did everyone go? I looked inside, I looked into the lagoon and looked down in the water, and that was the first time I saw a living jellyfish. <laughs> I hadn't seen, you know, I've of course seen, or living wild jellyfish. I mean, I've seen them in, the, in like aquariums and stuff. Um, I'd seen one dead man of war in Trinidad, so that's why I always have to say living. And um, it was just kind of going along its way. It was blue and it was strong. And I was just intrigued. I love creatures, I love animals. And when I saw it, I was just like, ah, oh my God. And, and that, was the, that was me for the, the next day. <laughs> to my daughter's annoyance, talking about the dang jellyfish. So <laughs> I was just so taken, I don't know why. It was, just, it was just in there, it was doing its thing, it was going about its business, just didn't seem to care. I like that. So um, I wanted to pay homage to it, and I did that by making it a murderous, murderous race of aliens in, in <laughs> a space opera. So there's that, and I knew when I saw it, that was one of those moments where I, I knew I would write about it. I knew, it's just a matter of time. Um, and then also just being in the United Arab Emirates was like, you know, you see a very even blend of the ancient and traditional and the modern. You know, um, what is it, the Burt Khalifa looks like that. <laughs> it looks like this science fictional edifice, especially at night, it's just incredible. So, um, but yet you see that, like very traditional things happening as well. So that was definitely, travel was a big part of just Binti as a whole, like um, traveling on a literal level and then traveling um, in a metaphorical way as well. And then the last influence was um, actually one of the, probably the biggest inspiration to writing Binti was my family. <laughs> um, I had been teaching at, the, at Chicago State University for a few years and I hated it. I hated it and I just, was, I felt trapped. And then at some point, it was like um, the University at Buffalo fell out of the sky and was like, hey, we've got this position for you. We've created this position for you because we love you so much and we want you to come. And I was like, what? And they're like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
Um, and, and mind you, my family is, is like, um, my parents, my father has passed, but um, my, my mom, and then my two, two older sisters and my younger brother, and then all of our kids were all in the Chicago area. Every day, or every, um, every weekend, we all come back and congregate at my mother's house, the house, the root. So, you know, you can see where that's going. And so, um, when I got this position, you know, I wanted to go, you know. And, and, and I told my family, and, and mind you, I come from a Nigerian-American background. It's just, it's a whole bunch of things, whole bunch of things about culture going on there. So when I told my family, they were like, no, you cannot take this, this position. You are not going. You cannot break up the family. You are not going, no. And I wanted to go. <laughs> and I did. I did go. And, um, and for about a year, um, my family was very, very angry at me. Uh, we, like, it, was, it was like being disowned for about a year. So, and my daughter stayed back with my mom because I, have, I travel a lot. So I, had, so I had gotten to Buffalo. It was August, the beginning of the semester. And this, my family, who I, we talk every day, they're the closest people to me, I was suddenly cut off from them. And it was very difficult. And so I started writing Binti. So it was like, it was through, through that experience that led me to, to um, start thinking about fear and um, their fear and like what their fear was of like, what could possibly happen? What's the worst thing that could happen if, we, if I left and went to uh, Buffalo, New York, took this position where I'd basically go back and forth? What's the worst thing that could happen? They were afraid of the worst happening. And so as I'm writing this story about this girl who leaves her home to go to this university on the, in the finest university in the galaxy that's on another planet, <laughs> I started thinking about, okay, what's the worst thing that could happen to her? And so that's how the plot came along, because the worst does happen. And then not just, it was kind of me dealing with a lot of things too, because when the worst happens, then as the writer, I had to see what happened next. I had to like face my own fear and go into my own fear. And so um, that was really what led to writing Binti. And then also, lastly, my fear of outer space. <laughs> that was still there. And so I figured since I'm facing fear, and I don't know, I have this thing where if I have a lot of chaos in my own life and I'm just facing things, I'll just go right into it. I'll go deep into it. So that whole idea of space came up. Like I started thinking about space and, um, and it might have had to do with me leaving home and feeling kind of like in a for being in a foreign place where I couldn't survive. Um, so I figured, okay, this is something I'm afraid to do. Okay, I'm gonna write a space opera. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna do this. So it was like, it was a culmination of a lot of things um, that, that led to me writing this story. And it's, it's um, in, in my opinion, it's some of my best writing. So in conclusion, um, science fiction has long been a bridge between the sciences and the arts, one that continues to evolve and reflect the effects of technology, science, and sociopolitical changes on people and their globalized societies. I think it can also be a way for some of us to explore identity and the fluidity of culture and movement and speculate about their significance and the effect on humanity in the future.
With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for Nedia Korofor and her work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member curious as to where Nettie Okorafor calls home. Yeah, that's a great question. Airplane? <laughs> the airplane? <laughs> Seriously, uh, that's something that's, um, that's my biggest question right now. What is home? Because, like, one, with, with all the traveling that I do, with, with the, what, where writing has taken me, it has taken me all over the world. It has taken me to the Middle East, it has taken me to Europe, it has taken me to parts of Africa that I've never been to multiple times, it's taken me to the Caribbean. And each time I go, and, and mind you, when I started doing this, I was terrified of flying. <laughs> terrified, and I had to face that. So um, eventually I did, and now when I can sleep through a takeoff. <laughs> which I never used to be able to do. So um, I've had times where I haven't had a lot of time to look up the country I'm going to where they don't, and they don't necessarily speak English, and I've had to just get on a plane and go. And, and I get there, and I found the more I do it, the more um, I can just kind of figure it out when I get there. So it's like the globe has become, a, like I feel like a global citizen in a lot of ways. So there's that, and then I live between Buffalo, New York, and Chicago, and I go literally 50% of the year I'm in one place, and 50% I'm in another place, so I go back and forth. And so when people ask, where are you from? I always hesitate, because I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I think that home, really, when I think of home, the first thing that, that pops into my head is my little tiny condo that's five minutes from my mom's house. You know, that's where I go, when, because when I go there, um, my daughter can walk, to, walk home, walk there to, from school, just show up whenever she feels like, which is great, and I'm comfortable there. I feel like I stop there. Like everywhere, everywhere else, I'm just, I feel like I'm moving, like everything is moving, everything is in motion. But in that place, I feel like I can, I can um, really just, just be calm. So I guess that would be like the, in the physical sense of home. Um, where your daughter is. Yeah, like close, close, where she can, because she, she moves like a thousand miles an hour. <laughs> she's, she's taller than me, okay? She's really tall, she's really fast, and she thinks really fast. So like she'll be here one second, and then I'll turn, and she's gone. She's like a pixie, I don't know. So yeah, so she's always like kind of moving around me and, and yeah, if I can, if I settle in that one spot, that's, that's home, yeah. If I had to define it, which I don't necessarily like to do. This question comes from a very eager fan wondering what a core for sees next for the Benti series. Will there be more books and when will they be released? <laughs> oh God, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, first I want to apologize. For those of you who have read Home, yes, it does end on a cliffhanger. I'm just going to say it. It does. It happened. All right? It happened. Um, and, you know, when I write, I stop where it stops. Like, there's something in me that says, okay, this is done. And this, that's where this one ended. It was done. And I was cool with that. Lots of people aren't, but that's okay. You'll be fine. <laughs> You'll be fine. Um, I do know where, uh, where it's going. I know that, that it's a trilogy. Like, I, I've written, I wrote part three, 
recently, like it just came, like all came, it just came in a rush. It was, it's, it's longer than Binti 2. And so I know exactly how it ends. Um, it's, it's a trilogy, but there are probably more after that. Like there are probably, it's like the trilogy is the end of a great arc. And there's, yeah, I'm not done with those characters. <laughs> I won't say which characters, but yeah, I'm not done. Um, what to expect. If I start talking about Binti 3, I will spill something. So I'm going to just not, because I just wrote it. It's very much in my head. I know, I know exactly what happens. I know, and mind you, I didn't know I was going to write it when I did. It was um, every August, they have come to me. Like Binti 1 came in August, I think it was, was it 2000 and either 14 or 15, and then um, Binti 2 came that next August, and Binti 3 came the next August, and I tried, I didn't want to write Binti 3, because I was like, I needed some, some rest, so I wrote an outline. I knew the whole story, I wrote the outline, and then uh, winter break came, and my brain was like, no, you're writing this now, and I spilled that thing in 10 days, and it was very together, and it probably won't require much editing, which is very rare for me, because I'm like all over the place, but yeah, I know exactly, exactly, where it goes um, and it's extraordinary it surprised me you know I was really really pleased with where with where it goes but I think that there's more after that but I don't know what I don't know when with the after part three or or what but I it's it's there it's there our next question is about how Akorafor and others see her work does she prefer to be classified as science fiction or Afrofuturism um, I think at this point, I don't really have a choice. <laughs> I think I, that, that name has been put on, especially Binti. If, if I were to label anything that I've written as, as um, solidly Afrofuturist, it would be Binti, definitely. Some of my other things, not necessarily. Um, I have issues with, um, with Afrofuturism because initially, it has a history, and it's grounded in, 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 um, in my opinion, the wrong place. Uh, Afrofuturism traditionally has been grounded in the United States. I believe it should be grounded in Africa, and then everything else should come out from that. Um, it, it, it initially was really associated with music as well, uh, like um, Sun Ra and P-Funk and, yeah, Outkast too, yeah. Yeah, um, which I agree with, but <laughs> it's sometimes I feel like Afrofuturism is so, the, I, the, the, what is defined as Afrofuturism is so broad that it just brings together so many different things that aren't necessarily related. And it's all because they're black and they might mention the future and I'm not sure how, if I agree with that. <laughs> but, the, but on the flip side of it, um, like, like, yeah, I'm like, uh, on the flip side of it, I think that Afrofuturism has given people like a, uh, an easy way to identify something. It's just the, it's the whole categorization thing. Uh, if you say Afrofuturist, people have a, some sort of idea of what to imagine. Like if I were to say um, my work is Afrofuturist, I have just saved myself a lot of time, <laughs> a lot of bumbling around. But I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing because sometimes the bumbling around is, is better. Um, so there's that. What, what do I prefer to be categorized? I just say Nettie-esque. Because <laughs> you don't know what I'm going to do next. Honestly, like I, 
I have, like, if you look at all of the things that I've written, even though, like, I guess the common thread is female, strong, complex female characters. Um, other than that, it's like I'm all over the place, and I want the freedom to be all over the place. If I want to write a book about five women's divorces and how they've affected each other, I want to be able to do that, you know? And that's always been my thing. So if I, I, I guess I, I do write science fiction. I do write Afrofuturist works. I do write African literature. I do write fantasy. I do write magical realism and some of the other stuff. Yeah, so it's like I do, I do a, lot of, a lot of things and I just want the freedom to do whatever I want to do. Yeah. This audience member wonders how Nedia Korfor comes up with a powerful imagery and sense of place in her stories. I have a strange mind. <laughs> I have, like, uh, I think um, it's not something that I, it's only when, when you know, people like you tell me that this is what I do that I can see it because I don't know what I do. I don't know, I just kind of <laughs> do that. And, um, but I'm very, I've always been, like I listen a lot. I listen, um, for example, there was one time where I was in, uh, earlier, like a few months ago, I was in Phoenix, Arizona, and um, it was for this whole writer's thing, and it was very fast-paced, and there wasn't a lot of time to chill and relax. And I wanted to chill and relax. I wanted to just take in the place. And the, we had a workshop, and, and during that writer's workshop, um, I just took the, I was like, okay, yeah, can I go do this, this, this um, writing prompt outside? And I went outside, and this was in the middle of winter, so I was loving the heat. I went outside, and I sat on this rock, and I just felt the sun, you know, the sun on my skin, and just was very still. Because there was something, we were in the desert, and there was something about the desert that really, um, that I loved, aside from the fact that there are these huge, enormous, fat grasshoppers that I was just <laughs> loving. They were so pretty. Um, but yeah, so I sat on this rock and was just, and just kind of felt everything around me. So I could feel the heat of the sun. I could hear the breeze. And when I was very still, it was like I connected with the land because in that fi the five minutes that I was out there, one of those fat grasshoppers came and sat near my foot. And I was like, and then a, a butterfly came and landed beside me, and a lizard ran onto the rock in front of me and just was sunbathing there. And I was just like, oh, okay, let me not move. This is just wonderful. So, yes, exactly, exactly. I mean, I wasn't going to start singing in that awful way, but you know, yeah, I won't do that. But um, I could. <laughs> But, um, you know, if I were to sit down and write about that moment, it would be with all of the senses. All of the, because it's, it's just, you know, that's just the way I experience the world, especially nature, especially outside. The, the um, sensory, um, sensory uh, definitions, for example, um, smell. I like to use smell a lot in my work. That it's like, um, I, I notice that when something is described in, in literature, a lot of times, they, the writer will just focus on those things that we assume, and I'll do the opposite. I will not describe the parts that we assume, and I'll describe those things that we don't. Like if, if someone is shot, right, and there's blood, I won't describe the sound. I'll describe the smell, 
you know, the smell of the gunpowder, that, that kind of thing. And those are, the, those are the kind of things that I just, um, I've always naturally done. So I think that, the, and um, I think when I'm, when I'm writing, I like to really be there. Everything falls away. I like to really, really be there. And I like to get as close to what I'm writing as possible. And I think a lot of, a lot of times that that comes out in what I'm writing. This question is about where the inspiration came from for Akata Witch. Well, the main, so the main character of Akata Witch, she happens to have albinism, and she's based on someone that I know. I spent, um, she was a family friend, or the daughter of one of my mom's closest friends. They came to spend some time with us. They came from Nigeria to spend some time with us, and her daughter did not want to spend time with her mother. <laughs> And so I ended up hanging out with her for the whole um, two weeks. And um, in that two weeks, I got to know her very well. And so eventually, she was very, she was quiet but intense. And the, the more she got to know me, the more she opened up. And there was one day where she just opened up about how she was treated because of her albinism in Nigeria. And, um, and the rage that came forth when she talked about it was like, she was quiet, and then she was rage. And, um, and I knew in that moment, I'm like, oh God, I gotta totally write about her. This, this rage is too good. I like writing about rage. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> I do. So that was where uh, Sunny came from. Like Sunny is intense. She was telling me about how she would fight kids at school. Um, so, you know, for, for, for once I was seeing this girl who was discriminated against in her school, um, but would fight back. Despite she was, you know, she was kind of like me in the in the in the fact that um, I was the same way when I was small. Like uh, if anyone tried to bully me, I was one of those like I was skinny and had, didn't have much flesh, um, but I was like crazy. <laughs> so if you came at me, I just nah. and so people would leave me alone. So she was the same. She was the same way, um, but she was a better fighter. And so so I knew I wanted to write about I wanted to write about her. So there's that, but also. Um, I have always been, and it might be my Nigerian Americanness, where I would know about these mystical traditions, and but because of my the okay, so I'd know about it because of my Nigerian side. You know, I, we'd have like events and there'd be masquerades that came out, and I was fascinated by them. But my American side looked at them from the outside and so was obsessed with them. Whereas Nigerians would be like, okay, we see this all the time, no big deal, we're used to that. My American side was like, oh my God, I wanna know more about this. And oh, women can't dress up as masquerades? Oh, I gotta know about that. So, <laughs> so it was like all these things, like I was obsessed with the mystical aspects of it, especially whenever I would go and I would ask about these things, I'd either be called a heathen, you know, they were, they were portrayed as like mysterious and forbidden knowledge. And because of that, I wanted more. And so that led, both, both knowing, um, knowing Sandra and then um, just having this whole wealth of knowledge about Nigerian traditions and questions that I had, and then also wanting to kind of breathe life into some of those traditions in really crazy ways led me to writing a Katowicz. You know, and it was in writing a kata, which is so much fun. Part two is so much fun. I just let loose with that and didn't worry about any of the consequences. <laughs> because, you know, I was dealing with some really, a lot of the things with a kata, which um, what's funny is people think I'm making these things up, but you'd be surprised at what I'm not making up. 
It's like I, a lot of that stuff, and like for example, in Nakatowicz, you have this this um, thing called a tungwa, which is this floating sphere with a skin, um, like a, it, it's like a basketball but with skin. So, <laughs> and it floats, and it's just there. It's randomly there, and then every so often it would just decide to explode into tufts of hair and teeth. <laughs> You'd think I'd made that up, right? <laughs> No, that was something my mom told me about. <laughs> my, mom, my mom said, oh yeah, in the village we had these tungwas and they'd float around and so-and-so's uncle's friend's father saw one and yeah, and they explode into and she couldn't say why. And I'm like, why is it even there? So yeah, didn't have to make that up, threw that right into a Katowicz, happily. There, there's a lot of that where I'm just like, oh God, you can't even make this stuff up. I'll just go there and listen to people and, and listen, especially like when the elders are speaking, they'll just say something and, be, and I'll just be in the back writing it down, <laughs> saving it for later. So yeah, that's, that's really where Akatowicz came from. An audience member inquires about who Akorafor's favorite authors are. Right now I've been reading a lot of Kim Stanley Robinson's work because he does info dumps <laughs> in ways that I've never seen anybody do them and it's just and it's he's fascinating you know he's very well researched and I, I just where he's he's the only writer that I've ever read that can do info dumps that I enjoy reading you know and that's something that's something that I can learn from but that's also something I can enjoy there's something very soothing about um, about reading him um, let's see what else? That's it right now. I mean, I'm all over the place. I'm all over the place and, and oh God, if I could bring up my good, I'm on Goodreads, so I have all of my, all of my, my books on there that I, that I read, but um, what's it called? The History of Seven Killings, um, Marlon James. I was fascinated by the way he would tell a story inside, from the inside out. Um, I don't necessarily read, I read all over the place. I read all over the place, so I don't, I don't necessarily read um, only speculative fiction. I, I'll pick up anything. I'll, I'll pick up a biography. I'll pick up, a, um, I hate the word realistic fiction. Uh, we need another word for that. But you know what I mean. I'll pick that up or, or whatever. But yeah, I mean, I think right, right now I've been reading, yeah, I've been reading a lot of Kim Stanley Robinson's work. I've read um, Red Mars. And I'll get to Blue Mars, it just did 2012. And then um, I'm waiting for his new one, which is another year. It's another, um, it's a year, but I can't remember what it is. But that's, yeah, that's, I'm on that right now. Between him and um, Octavia Butler's Parable series, which I'm rereading right now for obvious reasons, because I got to know what to do. <laughs> and, but um, yeah. This question is about where Akorafor draws her inspiration for her stories. Um, yeah, I think right now, uh, I think when I first started writing and to up till now, one of, the, one of the biggest inspirations was I needed to see certain types of stories told, like especially the stories of my aunts, my grandmother, um, my mother, because they were, I was reading a lot of, African literature, and I was reading a lot of, especially Nigerian literature, 
Um, there's one author she just passed, Buchi Emichita. If you've read her work, she goes deep, deep, deep into uh, the Nigerian woman, the plight of the Nigerian woman. And many of her, and I would not suggest reading too many of them in a row, or you're gonna wanna punch somebody. <laughs> but many of her novels would not end well. They would not end well. And um, so I was reading these, consuming those, and then listening to those stories that I would hear from family. And I knew that I wanted to write the stories of, of African women, but I wanted them to, um, I wanted them to have different endings and I wanted to show um, some of them navigating, especially through patriarchy, in the, di the dynamic ways that they were navigating through it. So that's really, that's really where I am right now. Um, I think that at some point I'm going to open that up some more and explore other sides of gender. Um, in in uh, Binti Home, there's one character uh, Hafa, who is transgender, and it's like the way that I the, the way that I wrote her was very. When I wrote her character, she first she came she came to me as a character as a whole, like this is who she is, and so it was like I could just write her, like I didn't have to think about all the issues behind what I was writing about, like behind her and what she has to deal with all that. I could just write her, um, but. She's interesting to me, and she's someone who I might, um, I might return to because she's, she, there was something about her that I found very interesting. It wasn't because she's transgender, no. She was just an interesting character. So I can see myself kind of opening that up a little more and exploring a little more. Um, but, and I, I also see myself writing some male characters as well. Um, but we'll see. I, I just like to be open to, doing whatever I want. It, but gender is very, very important to my work. That's, that was really the foundation of why I started writing. Um, I, wanted to see the, I wanted to see these stories of women and I wanted their endings to be different in some way. And I wanted to see uh, a greater variety as well. This question asker wonders how language plays a role in her books, especially in regards to Igbo. Oh, <laughs> Ebo is, a, oh boy, okay, where do I even begin with this? No, I don't speak it. Um, I can hear it, which means, you know what I mean, like, you hear it, you, <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> it's like you can understand it because you've grown up hearing it, you can understand it. Now, okay, so, and I've, I've explained this at Ebo conventions before, like when I talk about Ni Nigerian American kids and Igbo American kids and the issue of language, because language is very important. Language in many ways is at the center of culture. And so what does it mean when the children of the diaspora can't speak the language? So what, and this is something I've thought about because I mean, I've, I've lived this, you know, I've grown up living this because like um, growing up, we were, my siblings and I, we were always called, because we didn't speak Igbo, we were always called incomplete. That was the word, you know, so you're incomplete. Um, and, and the thing is, when it came to language, I've been going, my parents have been taking us back to Nigeria since I was, I was seven years old. So it was seven, eight, and nine. My sisters and I were all one year apart, and my brother is seven years younger than me. And um, so I've been going there for a long time. Now, when I was younger, 
we would always try to speak the language because you'd hear it. You just naturally, you, you, you were yelled at <laughs> in that language. You know, I mean, it's just there are words that you know, like even now when I drive, yeah, <laughs> it comes out, comes out. But um, yeah, so we'd go and we'd try to speak it, and, and especially in the village because we'd hear it and people would be speaking it around us and it just came naturally. But our American tongues would just mutilate the language. There, there are sounds in Igbo that do not exist in English. You know, um, and so it was very difficult. But we, would we were perfectly willing to try. We wanted to know the language. We wanted to learn it. We, we knew it was part of everything. Um, but the problem was, and this is what I always like to tell, um, what I always like to talk to whenever I talk at, at Igbo conventions, the problem was that every time we would try to speak it, the laughter would come. <laughs> The laughter, oh, there's nothing like trying to say something in Igbo and then like, cause when you're, when you're in the village, you'd, you had like a little, a gaggle of little boys and girls who would always follow you around everywhere you went. Making fun of your American accent, by the way, cause they just thought, you know, the way we speak English just sounds, they said it, I sounded like a cricket when I would speak. <laughs> it's so insulting. And so they would always ask me to say Christmas and then laugh and stuff like that. <laughs> say Christmas, Christmas, ha ha ha. Yeah, that was my, yeah. So like um, we try to speak it. So you'd have this gaggle of kids who was always following you around. You try to speak it and just there's like a laugh chorus behind you. You know, and, and it wasn't just the, the little kids, it was like the adults, everybody would laugh. And so after a while, like years of that, by the time I was a teenager, which is your most sensitive time, I just stopped. You know, I just stopped trying to speak it because it was just too freaking embarrassing. Um, so, and this is the case for many of us. You know, we end up not speaking it because of that, that there's like, I mean, I do, it does sound funny. <laughs> you know, they have a point, it does sound, we do sound funny, but, like, um, there's that divide. So um, language is very important to me. And even when I'm, when I'm writing, it's important. Like um, in, in Lagoon, you have whole sections that are in Pigeon English, for example. Like that is like flat out Pigeon English. That is like non-diluted Pigeon English. And I was so happy when my editor was like, yeah, let's keep it that way. Because I thought she was going to tell me to tone it down. Um, it's important. It's, it's important, but I also acknowledge the, f I, I acknowledge the fact that I have shortcomings when it comes to language. And then even with both of my parents, part of the reason why my parents didn't teach it to us was because Igbo for both of my parents was not their first language. It was not their second language. Igbo was their third language. My mother's first language was Hausa. My father's first language was Efik. Then their second languages were English and then Igbo. So their Igbo was really bad. <laughs> like both of them really bad. So they just would speak English to each other. And, and so that's how that happened. So it's not, um, there's a, a general misconception that the children of immigrants don't speak Igbo because they see Igbo as like um, low. Like, you know, you don't want to, you want to speak English. You don't want to speak that, that dirt language, you know? So there's this common misconception and that is not true. But um, just to bring it back to your question, language, for me is extremely important because it has been part of my, it has been a conflict that I've had to fight, but it's also something that I can see the, I, I acknowledge the importance that it holds within culture. Um, and I don't know what it's like to write a story in Igbo, but I could see it being writing the same story 
in Igbo versus in English, I could see it being different. I could see that having a difference. And, and then there's the issue of languages being kept alive. So yeah, language is important to me. The last question of the night comes from an audience member wondering how Nedia Korafor decided to become a writer and how she went about getting her first book published. Ignorance is bliss. <laughs> because my first novel was Zara the Windseeker. This is a science fiction slash fantasy um, novel, young adult novel based in Nigerian folklore. This is in, it was published in 2005. No such thing like it existed at the time, you know, and dare I say even now. So it's like, um, when I wrote that, I didn't think about that. I just, because I, both of my parents were, my father's a cardiovascular surgeon, my, mo my mom has a PhD in health administration, is a registered nurse, midwife, very science-oriented family. I don't have any, we have, in my family, we have professors and engineers and lawyers. You know, <laughs> no one goes into the arts until myself and my brother, who's an animator. So, like, there's, I don't have any of that background. When I came into this, I came into it with, um, with zero knowledge about publishing, which meant I had zero fear of publishing, which meant I didn't even consider um, the possibility that there, were pro there would be problems with what I was writing. Didn't even consider it. I was just like, I wrote this book, I think it's great, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I'm gonna put this out there. And so that's, that's really my, my advice, I think that, um, now times have changed because since then we've, have, we've had this influx of um, um, more diverse writers, um, more uh, black speculative fiction writers, especially over the last few years that has happened. Um, I think now is a, a great time, if you, if you actually look at the time, now is, now is a great time to, um, to put your stuff out there. But if you're writing something that is not being done and that has never been done, that has no track record, don't worry about it. Just write the thing, make it as awesome as possible, and then put it out there and see what happens. Because a lot of times you, you never know what might happen or how it might happen. You can't predict everything. And, and really, if you're writing something, it's for the love, right? You're writing it because you love what you're writing. If that's the case, then none of that will matter. You know, that, that, it, it might matter, but what's pushing you, what's making you barrel forth and keeping you going is that you love what you're doing. And then the last bit of advice I'll give is when you finish a, no when you finish a novel and you have it out there, make sure you're writing something else. Make sure you're writing the next thing. Why? Because one, a lot of times the first, the first thing that you write is not the thing that gets published. It might be the fifth. For me, it was the fifth or sixth. Um, also, when, it, inevitably, when you put something out there, you will get rejections. And um, one of the ways to keep, your, keep yourself sane and keep your head above water and, and stay confident is that when you get those rejections, you can always look at what you're currently writing and be like, oh, well, they haven't seen this yet. <laughs> they haven't seen this yet. <laughs> and then keep typing. So um, yeah, always have something that you're working on. Don't just finish something and sit on it and then wait for things to happen. Um, and then lastly, uh, the best way to improve as a writer is to keep writing. That's just across the board. Nobody, I mean, there are those freakish people who are just good at it from the very beginning. But very few people are awesome writers at the very beginning. It takes a lot of writing, a lot of pages to get where you need to go. And just be ready to do the work. Okay, I guess it, we're done. <laughs>
That wraps up our Ramsey County Library Roseville event with Nedia Korafor. Make sure to catch our next club book event with Cal Kalia Yang at Anoka County Library, Rum River, on Monday, February 27th. Cal Kalia is a Hmong American memoirist and teacher and a leading voice for one of Minnesota's fastest growing ethnic groups. Her newest book, The Song Poet, tells the story of her own father, one of many Hmong refugees who made a new home in the United States after the Vietnam War. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, Around Town Agency, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Clubbook. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.